So guess what I did last week? Do tell. I saw Tool. Oh, nice job. Nice job. I thought about it. I saw them years ago at uh, Molson Amphitheater. Guess what else I did last week? Uh, it's a broad range of possibilities, dude. I saw Tool play with Alex Lifeson. Yes, that's right. I saw the video from that. I was like, oh, son of a bitch. Yeah. Um, I might be seeing Getty Lee next week, though. He's gonna, They're showing uh, two episodes from his uh, his bass players uh, kind of show, and I think he's going to be in attendance. Okay, okay. So, you know, between I, the two of us, you know, we, we've at least got the surviving members. They're, of uh, they're you know, he's, he's, a, he's a good young go-getter right there. I kind of think I, I see what you're on to now. He's all over the place, that dude. Lifeson or, or Getty? Uh, Getty. But oh. Yeah, yeah Lifeson as well, yeah. Uh, we will talk about Tool at a later time. I'm really kind of curious uh, your thoughts on the show. But but I know the podcast is not about progressive metal. It was it was an experience, let me tell you that. <laughs> Welcome to wherever you are. My name is Ryan McNeil in Toronto, Canada. You are listening to episode 316 of the Matinee Cast. It's the movie-loving podcast of the Matinee.ca. Your home for cinematic passion and perspective. The time has come, dear friends. It's the sprint to the finish. It is officially December and the cinematic goods are coming fast and furious. Every week, multiple courses of cinematic nutrition are being served. Every week, a new list or awards body is announced to make a little more sense of the offerings and guide some choices. It really is a lot to keep up with. After all, how does one choose between a Priscilla and a Napoleon, a salt burn and a holdover? Well, that's where we come in and how we pile on as much as we can onto our plate and dig in with the hopes of pointing you towards the best dishes. Joining me in the buffet line is a gent who has sat at many a table with me before, going back almost to the very beginnings of this space and its predecessor, um, and always uh, looking for the works that will translate into time well spent. The man enjoying his retirement, which is incredible to say, Woo! Bob Turnbull is here. How are you, man? Uh, well, you just said it all right there. Enjoying the retirement. I am very lucky to have uh, been able to do that a little bit ahead of schedule. So yay me. Nice, nice. I can't can't wait to find out what projects you get into now that you have the time. Maybe maybe you'll start writing again. Uh, may, maybe, maybe. I thought about that. But to start with, nothing. Absolutely. Well, there's that. Yeah, I want to yeah, do that I, downtime please thing. Please do. Yeah. Please do a whole lot of nothing. Uh, if I may make a request, I would love you to return to a video essay at some point i do miss those and yours yours were so lovely if you could do one of those at some point or another i, I would count myself a lucky man uh thank you sir i appreciate that um i've thought about doing that too i really enjoy putting those together nice well been a while, um bob is actually i mean bob is more than a 10-time guest and I was not quite ready to cross that threshold just yet. So we are going to skip the new slang on this episode, which is, I think, going to work in our advantage because we have a film that's um, got a lot to dig into, even though it is rather simple and rather straightforward in what it is. There's a lot that's baked right in there, and I really do look forward to, to talking about it with our guests, and I don't really want to rush it. So we're going to skip Know Your Enemy on this episode and go straight to the new slang. The new slang for episode 316 is The Holdovers, coming up right after this. I listen to the wind, to the wind of my soul Where I'll end up, well I think only God really knows I've sat upon the setting sun but never, 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 never I never wanted water once And I never, never, never 
The Holdovers is directed by Alexander Payne. It's written by David Hemmingson. It stars Paul Giamatti, Devine Joy Randolph, and Dominic Sessa. The Holdovers is set in 1970 at Barton Academy, a New England boarding school. As the school approaches Christmas break, it falls upon history teacher Paul Hunnam, that's Giamatti, to stay over the recess and mind the children who have nowhere to go for the holidays. Through a weird twist of fate, what begins as Hunnam supervising five lads dwindles down to just one, Angus Tully, who's played by Dominic Sessa. While Tully is a bright kid, he comes saddled with a lot of baggage and isn't entirely thrilled to be under Hunnam's watch for two weeks. Then there's Mary, that's Divine Joy Randolph, the school's head chef who is also a partner over the holidays, seemingly hiding from those she holds dear. So it goes that these three unlikely holdovers get stuck with each other and end up learning an awful lot while school is out of session. We sometimes go to great lengths to mimic a past aesthetic. It could be a style of dress, it could be the right music, it could be cars. Pull the right look together and all of a sudden the world can become a living, breathing Instagram filter. However, one needs to wonder why. Are we just styling our stories to create a faux atmosphere of a bygone era with misguided feelings that it was somehow better? Or is all of this brown and yellow tint serve a higher master? So let's start there. Pop quiz hotshot. What purpose does the faux 70 settings of the holdovers serve? Wasn't ready for that one. Uh, I, I, certainly want to talk about, I certainly want to talk about the 70 settings and that sense of place and so forth. Um, part of it, I think, is the way this film was put together and that focus on character harking back, if I may say that, to, to the 70s style of uh, U.S. Um, or American films at that time, Hal Ashby being the obvious kind of place oh, to totally. go to. Yeah. Um, but I, I think it kind of works, too, with his position as, uh, as a history professor and the kinds of things that he quotes, um, really kind of you know diving back to things from like Cicero and, and just some of the other, the other elements. The Vietnam War comes in and is a really interesting touchstone for one of the characters, well, actually two of the characters in, in, in some ways. So I, I think... You know, I think part of it is he really wanted to kind of set it in that time so he could go back to that style of movie making. Mm -hmm. And by the way, there, there has been, as you probably heard through our own friends but on Twitter too, a lot of discussion about where are those mid-level, mid-cost American movies? You know, not the blockbusters. Well, yeah, uh, there's a lot of stuff we could talk about on that front. But this is one of those, right, where it's not the low, low, low budget thing that, you know, we're hoping we'll sneak out of Sundance. It's not the big blockbuster, which is fine. I have, I have no issues with those, except when they push out these mid-tier movies that focus on character and character drives story. And the story has natural but still surprising outcomes that just really pull you along. Um, that doesn't really answer your question. Um, I think it was, it was more of a stylistic choice on, on Payne's part, but it just fits so perfectly into that milieu. I mean, with, with the Vietnam references, with the ability of this professor really kind of call even further back and some things that he's quoting, um, I, I didn't even pause for a second and thinking, oh, it's one of those kind of you know, nostalgic uh, things from like 50, 45 years ago. Yeah. No, this this was the world and i was immediately pulled into it uh, again that sense of place is absolutely wonderful in this movie uh, you know i think one thing that setting it when they said it i mean they could have said it anywhere up to and including uh not all that long ago and this one of these points still would have worked um is i believe that for this kind of story 
where we're talking about somebody being stuck in a place and just having to go along for the ride. You know, they can't, there's only so much of the best of it they can make. Um, I think one of the keys to that kind of story is you need to set it before the, the encroachment of tech. So if this story was, for instance, set now, oh, well, you know, Tully is going to be in a bad place, but he's going to FaceTime with his friends and he's going to surf his feeds and, you know, he'll be okay. He won't be with his family and he won't be having that great of a time, but he will still have a window to the outside world. He's not going to be stuck in place. To put this movie back in the before times when we didn't all have that window into, you know, the broader world, either on our desk or, you know, eventually in our pocket, um, that creates this um this forced connection of these you know starting out with seven and then dwindling down to three people um you know whereas if you if you said it anywhere within the last you know 25 30 years that pull would have been there but anytime before that you can have this kind of sense of isolation there's also um i feel with this 70s story being told now you know whatever it is, 53 years later, this echo that uh, Hunnam keeps bringing up of the past informing the present, you know, this idea that we are more than, we are more than what we present ourselves to be. Like nobody necessarily knows our whole story. Um, That is, you know, and, and, and not only does nobody know our whole story, but oftentimes we haven't, you know, throughout the course of history, we had no idea what this person was going through or that person was going through because we just were not in their shoes. So that's something that Hunnam, you know, he really digs into when when it's finally just um, him and Tully later on in the film. I feel like that's really echoed in this movie that to tell this story of of these people in 1970, it's not it, it's a lot of. 1970s themes but it's not strictly 1970s themes this this movie does transcend but i believe it wants to make that point by saying here's a 70s story that's actually still very appropriate to what we're going through today yeah those those are great points actually i mean there's the tactical nature of some of the plot points even though you know characters really driving the story there are certain things that sort of set things up the uh the inability to communicate with some of the parents and all that obviously that would have been fixed fairly easily uh, um, in, in modern times, but I like your point too. And I was just checking my, my notes here. And if I had looked at it just before we started the show, I would have had a really quick answer for you. <laughs> you must begin in the past to understand the present. Yep. Which I think gets exactly to what you just said is setting in a time that can very much relate to the present because they talk about, you know, the world is, is decay and life is perception. And I think he is actually setting this years back to really, um, in another time where you know, the world was apparently in decay, or at least they felt that way, and maybe not so optimistic about the future, uh, and certainly these characters are not optimistic about their own futures, um, that that can relate to a lot of things that are you know going on today. Yeah, we we haven't actually really dug into this because you when we when last time I saw you, uh, you had seen it and I had not yet. Um, so we we haven't really got a chance to really dig into the nuts and bolts. Uh, what did you think of this movie? I loved it. I absolutely loved it. Uh, I went to see it a second time this week. <laughs> loved it all over again um, for, for several reasons. I mean, a lot of the stuff that we just talked about, how the characters drive the story, etc., uh, how it does use these major themes all throughout um, 
for the arcs of their characters. But boy, oh boy, that 70s aesthetic. I mean, let, let's start <laughs> with the obvious things up front. Sure. And right up front, from the pops and crackles on the soundtrack, that you know, that blue screen with the white uh, line with the R rating, the focus features kind of screen, very, very strong 70s vibe. The acoustic music, straight out of probably like a Hal Ashby kind of movie of that time. Um, right away, I was just kind of sucked in. And just the pace of the movie, too, you know, if if not a lot of things happen from a plot point of view, a lot of things keep you involved in the story from a character point of view, from what they say, what, what they do. I mean, and these are all characters that you don't necessarily love right up front. Uh, some of them could even be termed as assholes, mm -hmm. but they all have these redeeming qualities that pop out occasionally and really do surface as the movie goes forward. Uh, again, I, I, I don't want to keep harking back to Hal Ashby, but I think that's certainly a touchstone of him creating those kind of characters and Payne, maybe not necessarily duplicating that, but really carrying that torch on with them. I, I love the resolution, for lack of a better term, where a lot of these characters ended up. Um, and that's not even the right term. They didn't end up there. It is a life in process, but they're making those changes themselves. They're, they're, they're trying to take ownership of their lives. And there's a, there's a number of things in the movie that address that too. Basically, there's a, there's a quote about fate where um, if you don't do anything, you know, your fate is already set for you. But if you try and make a change, that first step moves you towards a different fate. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what they're trying, that all these characters suddenly realize, like, okay, I, I, I may have several fates. I'm going to try and pick a better one ahead of me. And I'm going to change things and not just become a better person, but at least get some ownership. And I think all three of the main characters are struggling with that ownership of their fates. I didn't, I didn't actually expect to enjoy it this much. Um, you know, I, I knew that you had, and um, that was, a, that was a very good sign already. I generally really enjoy um, the films of Alexander Payne. He's been gone for a minute. I feel like, we haven't had a movie out of him in ten years. Down, downsizing was his last one, like sweats. Oh, I, I, okay. So I, I tend to I tend to forget about that one, which I haven't great. seen. I think that's. I don't, the, I don't think that one does so well. Yeah. But um, the last the last really good one was Nebraska, and that was ten years ago. Um, yeah, right. Yep. So so he's only had you know, this is only a second movie in ten years. So it's 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 been a minute, which is interesting to say about a director who's not making. Lord of the Rings. You know what I'm saying? Like his movies are very economical. Um, they are you know, not, don't get me wrong. It takes a lot of work to make a movie look like this. He's not just turning on a GoPro. Uh, it's, it's the kind of thing where I'm surprised that his filmography isn't longer than it is. Uh, and I say that surprise in a way that I want more films from him because I, I enjoy the heck out of his storytelling. Almost every single one of them. I enjoy them, uh, you know, to, to varying degrees of like to love. I didn't know what to expect going in. I knew, you know, I kind of had an idea, but I thought, you know, it might, this might be a slapdash goofy comedy. This might be something a little bit more mellow. His films kind of run the gamut. And I was, I found myself sucked in, um, I, much more sucked in than I really anticipated for a film of this scale. Um, it's very sweet. It's it oftentimes it's actually, um, rather sad too. There's a lot, there's a lot of sadness that's baked into this movie um, to, to temper some of those slapdashy goofy moments. And I think more than anything, what I really enjoyed is I have a deep affinity for films that are set at Christmas time that are not necessarily Christmas films. So it's kind of the difference between something like 
Kiss Kiss Bang Bang and Elf. You know, yeah, this yeah. film <laughs> this film has a lot of Christmas on its mind because Christmas comes up a lot, but it's not what I'd call a prototypical Christmas movie that you're going to see on like playing on Christmas Eve on television or in a theater. Um, but those movies, those ones that are set at Christmas time um, and have Christmas as part of their themes, I love those so 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 much. Those are the ones that I tend to like put on first and that's what i've been watching this week i've been watching stuff like the ref and uh perks of being a wallflower and uh, i you know those those kinds of movies so it feels like it's been a minute since we've had another one of those so i i was really really quite smitten um with what we got i think we need to start with paul giamatti um he i mean the man can do no wrong the man can act circles around just about anybody here we have him as hunnam this teacher that everybody seems to dislike and you know we're not necessarily sure why but we we come to learn that well the acting overall is is absolutely fantastic in this film um before i go on about jimati i i just found that quote about fate and i, I wish i thought about it before because it would have made a lot more sense but the steps you take to avoid your fate also lead you to it so uh, it's, it's a nice short yeah, way of kind of saying that you can one. change your fate but it goes towards another one but it's in your hands yeah um and Giamatti and the characters, I think, do come to that realization at some point in different ways. He he's absolutely fantastic. Yeah, he he can play asshole with the best of them. If you think back to American Splendor, uh, Sideways, uh, I, he's done it before, and I'm sure he can do it again. But there's so much humanity in his character that really seeps through, um, even if he doesn't want it. You can sort of see it pop out. Whether it's defending, you know, another person, the, the staff, the way he he slowly gradually appreciates the sweetness of another member of the staff, the way he starts feeling ownership of, you know, well, at least the main kid in the story, um, it's it's I don't want to say it's a master class because that, that that sounds too reductive, but it's absolutely one of he feels like this real person this real history teacher at this boarding school who's got all this pent-up bitterness inside of him at these privileged kids let's shake our fists at them um and it just comes out in his manner of speech in his insults in his tone of voice the way he carries himself the way he reacts to things like everything like he really has created this character and it's not a sudden shift uh, not that he's even changed completely at the end, but the shifts are slow towards other characters. They're 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 built up. They're they're hard won, but they're there. Um, and he just he hits every single note uh, from from my point of view. I mean, I I, I stop thinking that's Paul Giamatti, yeah. and it's you know it's I'm glad I never had this guy as a teacher, but I actually think I would have liked to have known him. Maybe later in the movie. <laughs> Maybe not so much right up front. But. You know what's funny? He's not what I'd necessarily call a chameleon who disappears into every role. You know, he's not somebody like, you know, for, for lack of a better example, he's not like somebody like Christian Bale. You know, where, where from part to part, he really changes so much about who he is. Every time he takes a part, you know, you, you get into that scene in the movie, he's like, oh, there's Paul Giamatti. You know, so he's he's generally playing Paul Giamatti, but at the same time, he always finds these slightly different ways to approach the story and the character that give you somebody new. So he's not completely changing. I mean, listen, he looks like what he looks like. You can pick him out of a crowd, which is funny because he actually kind of looks very much like an everyman. So it's it's kind of you know it's it's kind of this thing where he's like distinctly non-distinct. 
he starts out with this real air of superiority and it's on display in there's a scene that has been making the rounds because it's one of these scenes that they released before the movie to promote it where he's handing out the grades to his students and he's whistling theme of the valkyries as he's dropping <laughs> f's and d's and d pluses and f pluses and d minuses on the one hand he's exasperated because these kids don't give a shit but what we learn just in that one moment is did they not give a shit because maybe you don't give a shit you know, later on in the in the film, um, Tully will kind of ask him why he doesn't present history this other way. You know, they're, mm. they're in a moment and and uh, Hunnam really finally encapsulates what it is about history he loves and why he believes history is important. And uh, Tully's like, well, why don't you tell that? Like, why, why don't you, you love it. You clearly love it. Why don't you bring that love to your classes and maybe we'll absorb some of that love and we'll understand it. Cause right now it just seems like we're trying to learn nothing. So he, you know, that's the kind of thing that he begins out with. And he's this really, you know, crotchety Jim Beam swigging <laughs> self-involved person who we watch grow. I'd say over the course of this movie, it's, it's very subtle, but there's a lot of growth that goes on with Hunnam over the course of this movie. It's funny too because he's actually really petty in some ways. I mean, as you're talking about the grades, oh, yeah. uh, F plus. <laughs> Come on, what a, what a nice little stab there! You failed, but hey, you failed with a little plus. You're one of the a best. A wee bit of hope. <laughs> um, yeah, and just just his his almost need to cut down the students and just about everybody at at, at every every corner because he still feels all that bitterness inside. And it's funny too when you talk about his appearance. Yeah, call it nebbish or or whatever. He he's still he's not an unattractive man. He's you know like you said, kind of a just a, a normal person out there. But he he casts himself as nobody would look twice at me. Nobody would even want to look at me once. And all three of the main characters, I think, have these issues with portraying themselves. They do have certain things that maybe you know they they stand out from a crowd mm -hmm. uh, angus is very kind of gangly and tall and he's a year held back because he keeps getting you know kind of expelled from school um and you know mary is is a is a large woman as well but they all they're they're not that that's not the defining thing about these people no i think they kind of think it sort of is yeah yeah i See, mean like with with hunnam i mean one of the things that's happening with hunnam is he's got this lazy eye and, you know, I, I think he thinks that's one of the things that people always will notice and, and gravitate towards first, where, you know, later on when we meet one of his co-workers who invites the, the lot of them to her Christmas party, it, it feels as though she, she doesn't even think about it twice. Like, you know, obviously she's noticed it because you can't talk to this person for more than five minutes and not, but she just doesn't get hung up on it, whereas Hunnam feels hung up on it. That, that's how he sees himself through other people is, is the the external kind of features and all that so he's like fine i'm, I'm gonna be exactly what you think i am and just plays right into that yeah and you know i'd like to think they all they'll learn something throughout the movie yeah. 
Um, yeah, the Giamatti just uh, just nails it. I mean, it, Oscars all around from from uh, the way I kind of see this from an acting point of view, or at least noms anyway. Not that that's the biggest uh, um, necessity uh, for this movie, but I, I have to expect that people are going to be recognizing. I, I mean, like, it's job. just one of these things that I love is it's really, it's a trio. Like, this could be done as a play. This very easily could be done as a play because you've got this core trio and then you've got a couple ancillary characters that come in and out and the core trio play off each other so so very well i wanted to actually this is a, a good time to do it i wanted to move over to talking about um divine as mary because holy hannah this is this is the performance of a lifetime for somebody Absolutely. who generally just does just does straight comedy um she touches all these bases so elegantly apparently she had to learn to smoke for this movie (laughs) yeah which i was thinking about because like when um when um tully thanks her for uh preparing a christmas dinner because he says that um he's never had a christmas dinner the way she says you're welcome and she kind of exhales the smoke i'm like oh that looks like you know that 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 looks like a seasoned smoker you know kind of like offering gratitude in between puffs apparently that was learned so she you know when we first meet her she's for a lot of this movie she's really down on herself she's like she's got a lot going on because she's lost her son in in vietnam um her son was a student at this school um and you know he got in because she's faculty we learn like he's a bright kid so he had the marks but he you know whereas a lot of these other kids get legacy because of who their parents are or who their their parents friends are she, he got in because she works there, which kind of tells you a little bit about the dynamic. And he was the only one who didn't get the deferral either from right. going to Vietnam. And he said, I'm going. And, you know, sadly. Yeah. And her husband, too, uh, passed away early on as well. I think she said both both of them before they were 25. Yeah. So that that's that's a hell of a lot to deal with. And just imagine what your life could have been. Again, like, I guess this is my fate. She handles all those things. The subtlety, I mean, I, I think some people might initially kind of read, oh, yeah, she's one of these blase characters. But the way, when she does those little soft mm-hmms, yeah. th- there's no way I could replicate it. They're they're just perfect. They're absolutely perfect. And the moment in her, her tone of them, it communicates kind of so much. Either it's kind of a, yeah, 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 you're welcome, or it's a bit of a dismissal, even kind of like, mm-hmm. It, it's small little changes in tone. She just hits absolutely kind of perfectly i mean see she has seen some shit she's dealing with her own shit and she won't take your shit yeah <laughs> but she's almost kind of given up at this point it, it's also interesting to sort of see how she again i want to focus on the arcs of the characters but how she sort of transitions in the movie too it, it's it's wonderful to see because on the one hand you know she's she's processing a lot of stuff like we you know when we first not when, not when we first meet her but not long after we first meet her we is when we learn that her son has died you know we're in this mass and we're looking at all these um barton boys who have died in you know going and serving their country and he seems to be like the newest one and you know it's it's been a while since a barton boy has died in combat because let's get real they're boys of privilege and boys of privilege usually don't get sent for combat well barton boys don't go to vietnam they actually i think said that in the movie yeah yeah except of course for for curtis yeah so when we meet her she's she's dealing it's i think it's they they set it up that it's been a, a little more than a year and then as we get into this situation where, you know, it's Hunnam and Tully left after this 
incredible plot device that takes the <laughs> other kids out of the way, which in a less confident movie, that's where the whole thing falls apart. But <laughs> this movie finds a way to get the other kids out of the way and leave it with just these three. Her role evolves, you know, like she kind of, they're kind of foster parents at that moment. Um, Hunnam is learning more about her. She's learning more about herself. She's trying to move forward, but obviously really struggling with it because her grief is overwhelming and we watch that bubble up in this Christmas party where at first she seems like she's just having a great time. Like she takes over the music and she's talking to people, but then it just becomes too much. And she has this really um, affecting um, breakdown in the middle of this party. Um, her, her performance in this, like I, I've seen her in a few other things and she's, she generally plays a different kind of character. This is extraordinary. That that scene you're referring to, I, I assume everybody's going to see that throughout the the awards season. All that is is pretty short, but it's so affecting because it it actually it really does feel real. Um, not because of a huge big emotional breakdown, but because when um, at some point like she's crying and, and somebody touches her, her reaction to that, the way her entire body kind of tenses up, mm-hmm. and she she doesn't know what to do with her body. She's in this huge emotional upheaval. And I think that's far more realistic than the, not, not to say I, <laughs> people can help what they do in a situation like that, but it just feels much more like a realistic reaction of your body and your brain, just not being able to deal. And, yeah. and you're just not sure what she's going to do because she's not sure what yeah. she's going to do. It's absolutely, um, I don't want to say wonderful because it's a really emotional moment, but it's absolutely brilliant. In the it's way very she affecting. It, her her entire performance is very affecting. It's 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 funny because she owes Tully nothing. She owes Tully not a damn thing. Here's another kid of privilege who he's you know he's a little bit less of a shit than the others, but here's another kid of privilege who just barely probably pays her any attention, but she still feels for him when he's left, especially when he's left behind and the other kids get to go, you know, so she does things like when they go for this dinner and he's not allowed to have cherries Jubilee. So she orders cherries and ice cream to go, you know, and basically tries to make cherries Jubilee in a box. Um, you know, like things like that are, are all part of both the script and the performance with this character. And it's just, it's wonderful to see. There's another point too when uh, it's just before a Christmas party and Hunan doesn't want to go, and, and Tully desperately just wants some kind of human contact, and she basically says to the professors like, "Don't don't ruin the little prick's Christmas just because you're being an asshole." I, I forget <laughs> the exact way she said that, but yeah, in her kind of insult to both of them, there is that sort of humanity underneath that she's kind of like, "Come on, this kid needs something." Yeah, and and you know that even even just that party too, hitting the sense of place and the 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 basement, it just felt like that's absolutely the kind of seventies basement where the stairs are maybe not quite as sharp down. It's sort of a wide open kind of a thing. It uh, maybe I'm just harking back to the seventies basements I'd been in. It's like yeah, that looks so familiar. That was the way that was the way the Christmas parties went, right? The adults were up on the ground yeah, yeah, yeah. floor drinking it's and listening there, to music yeah. and whatever, and the kids went downstairs. Uh, in some cases, times have not changed too, too much, but yeah. <laughs> of course. I, I mentioned earlier on in this episode that this film really seems to have baggage on its mind about how we don't always understand how somebody is in the position that they are. Um, you know, we, we learn all three of these characters. We learn that there is more to them um, than, than it seems. You know, I, I think we've kind of learned Mary's first. It, it's kind of 
explain to these kids over this over this dinner and they're they're not really receiving it because they're kids and they're jerks but all three of them uh hanum and uh, tully and mary have these have this baggage that they're dealing with and the movie takes its moment to really bring all of them to the fourth how did, did, you, did that work for you yeah, absolutely yeah because, because it did it it did it slowly and again naturally i mean you know that there's more to the backstory of both hunan and telly you, you just know that there's more there and then you know some of the bigger things sort of come out and then there's other pieces that come out that really start forming this like oh okay i see why you're so bitter or why you you have to be sarcastic to everybody i kind of get it now it makes sense you've you've started to really pad out this this fully you know fully formed character even the um the smaller ones, some of the other kids that are there for a bit and then, and then, you know, uh, fly out of there. Uh, like you said, with that sort of device, uh, the quarterback, it, it's, it's interesting because you think he's going to be stupid, dumb jock or whatever, but I think we all probably remember maybe somebody in high school, somebody who's a little bit more senior, a sports jock or something like that, that you weren't buddies with, yeah. but who was still a you know, kind of a nice person was respectful, wasn't always inclusive, didn't really think about it, but would be if they, they needed to be, would talk to a kid and consider them, if not an equal, at least don't talk down to them. And I thought that was a really interesting way to portray this kid who also has, you know, some issues. He mentioned there's a throwaway line about his hair yeah. in there that sort of comes back really briefly towards the end when he's back. And you're like, you know, he's dealing with some stuff too. And that the two younger kids who are, Probably not in high school yet. They're Probably like grade seven or grade eight. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, they both come from far further off places, can't get home for Christmas. You never really get into their dynamics just a little bit, but you know that there's so much more there. And and oh, yeah. he just he creates enough that you're curious. Yeah. And I actually would have liked to hear more from them, but not at the expense of the characters we did get. No. So I think that's a pretty darn good sign of what he was doing with his character creation one. He leaves you wanting more, but also gives you a whole lot with the main ones. Yeah, I, I thought, especially when it came to Tully, I thought this whole notion that you know like he he starts out by saying that his father is dead um and his mom is you know his mom is trying to move on with her life and that's part of the reason why he's stuck there you know we get into christmas and we get into it being just him and we learn that his father is not dead and his father's story is actually a lot more complicated mm-hmm. and it's like how would this inform this this teenager who you know would probably would not have the tools to deal with that now let alone 50 years ago where this was how you dealt with it. You just locked people up, you know, and, and moved on with, with, with your marriage and your life and your, your, your family. The way that comes up into the story, the way that Sessa plays a lot of these moments, I thought was, was really quite lovely and really gave the film that extra weight. I'm using the metaphor of baggage. So I realized that saying it gives it more weight is kind of clumsy, but um, those moments, you know, like learning what, um, Tully has gone through learning, you know, we, we get Mary's first, so we're able to really extrapolate that, but we, you know, we're, we're given a lot of time to unpack it later learning what Hunnam went through kind of at this crucial moment of his life and how he's never really dealt with that fully. He's just kind of kept packing it up, moving to the next place. Um, I, I felt that that was an incredible part of this film. And he's almost kind of pushing it, right? Like he, he's kind of pushing the, oh yeah, expel me again. Because again, he, he in his mind, his fate is already set. He's going to the military school. Mm-hmm. His, mm-hmm. New, his father, uh, his new, not father, but uh, stepfather. Uh, well, stepfather, thanks. Um, 
is determined to send him to military school. And he's kind of like, screw it. Uh, I'm just going to be that asshole. You're going to have to expel me. I, I think that really informs his character. At some point, he realizes he, he, he doesn't have to kind of kind of push. Every piece of that backstory for Tully, again, goes to create this fully formed character. How he um, dealt with his father's uh, illness, mm-hmm. uh, where, where that went, how he still misses him, how he still thinks he can kind of get him back and it's just other people in his way. Um, even though he's kind of like, yeah, this is my fate, he still holds on to that. Like th- That's a little bit of hope for him. Yeah. Uh, and seeing some of that get crushed is, is another one of those kind of emotionally, if not devastating moments, just really hard-hitting and, and well-won moments where you just feel so much for this kid who has been a sarcastic asshole for most of the movie, uh, but has shown those bits of humanity too, right? I mean, if we're talking about his character, uh, with one of the, the younger boys uh, who wakes up in the middle of the night, you know, was crying and had, had some oh, issues yeah, and all yeah. that, yeah. he's very empathetic to him. But it's funny because throughout most of the movie, he even admits I, he doesn't know how to do empathy. He can't quite put himself in your shoes. He can't read his audience. And then he has moments, like at the party, he's, he's really concerned about Mary. He, he pulls out, you, know, you got to come down. He's standing there. You can, you can see it on his face. Then they're helping her out, and he's immediately like, so we're going to come back, right? Because he met a girl there. He's like, but yeah. no, I got to come back. And suddenly it's all about that. And Mary has to kind of say, let him come back. And she's dealing with all this stuff. And she's the one who's now suddenly got to focus her attention back on him. So he's very selfish from that point of view. Um, but again, it, it's it's that um, that ability or inability for him to to really know that uh, that empathy. There's another quote they use in the movie. I think this was a Cicero quote. The, uh, not for ourselves alone are we born. Mm-hmm. And I think that's another one of the, like there, there's three or four quotes that really, really tie down this movie. That the fate one, uh, the, you know, the steps you take to avoid your fate also lead you to it. Not for ourselves alone are we born. And lying never did nobody no good know how, so why am I lying now? And that's in the song at the end, which really kind of ties up that whole Barton men don't lie. Yeah. Usually, which well, of. I mean, it's funny because on the I, I was actually going to bring that up next is you know, we we hear that lobbed around a little bit in the third act of this movie that Barton men don't lie, and yet here's two Barton men that are lying, but at the same time, I don't really consider either one of these two people dishonest. They are mm-hmm. not fully copping to the truth, but that's possibly and probably because the truth is something very difficult that they may not even be ready to share just yet yeah, yeah. and need to share. And it really brings into this idea, the notion of, of lying and, and what it, you know, what it, what it's about and what it means. Like, is it just any mistruth is a lie or does it mean that there's, there has to be malice there because these men are lying in, in their own ways. But at the same time, I don't feel like either one of them is being dishonest. And I feel like this film actually goes out of its way to really help us understand that. I've brought that up in the past about documentaries, that there's a lot of documentaries out there that are not completely factual, but they're still honest in their intention. And there's a lot of other ones that are using very good facts, but they're being completely dishonest in the way that they're framing what happened. And there's, you know, there's a, a, there's a difference. And B, I feel like when you are on the wrong side of that difference, that you've made a poor documentary. This film seems to be very much having that at heart, that one can lie, and yet at the still at the same time still be an honest person. Yeah, and I think I think they're protecting their vulnerabilities, right? 
Sure. Uh, whether it's about, you know, him, uh, the professor Hunan, uh, lying to an old classmate he meets yeah. about what he's currently doing because he's sort of protecting him from really talking about the reality of why he ended up there and he's, you know, been stuck there. Yeah. Uh, and and this, the same for the kid about his, his dad and tell you about his dad. Um, because if he has to really be honest with people about that, that's a devastating thing to talk about. Right. Yeah. Um, and, and I, lo- I love, what is it? Uh, I think it was at the end. Um, oh, geez, I forget who it was. And I said, uh, I just told the truth mostly. And then the <laughs> other one says, Martin man. So yeah. <laughs> there's this kind of agreement that, you know, their view of what they're pulling from Barton is tell the truth, but you know, it's okay to either embellish or hold some things up for your own kind of benefit. As long as the main truth is getting out there and you're hopefully doing good. Yeah. Uh, initially, I think a lot of their lies aren't necessarily about that, but I think that's where they get to. Was there anything that we didn't touch on that you wanted to bring up? There's, I mean, we could be talking about this movie until rapture. Uh, so many things I pull up from there. Um, uh, th- let's talk briefly about the soundtrack. Mm. Um, I mentioned early on that, you know, it's very acoustic in nature. I, I think there's an Almond Brothers song in there, but even then that's uh, in memory of Elizabeth Reed. And that's a little bit more of an acoustic one, but it's, it has that tempo acoustic vibe that a lot of these seven, like I, I immediately thought of like Harold and Mon or something mm-hmm. like that just because of that. Um, there's a Cat Stevens song in there midway when he's skating where immediately you kind of think, Oh, that's a little cliche, but God damn it. It works. It just absolutely that, works. That for me was the bridge too far. That like, if we, oh, we, if we were going to, okay. yeah, if we are going to do a Hal Ashby movie that's the one that's off limits <laughs> i i was okay with it and because it wasn't overly long and i was just uh it's, it's so sweet for that moment and then you know they kind of bring it back to reality a bit so it's fine with that um and, and even just you know that that uh that closing out song where the lyrics are just kind of you know restating one of the themes of the movie is kind of like, wow bravo with uh picking and scoring this movie across the board I do, um, I do love those kind of soundtracks. I, I've said before on this show that I kind of loathe the soundtracks that are just all greatest hits, like the soundtracks where you can tell yeah, yeah. they got a lot of money and they could choose just any song that came to their mind. Um, Zemeckis does this a lot lately. Zack Snyder does this a ton. Um, it's just like it's like go get like the the most obvious expensive choice you can think of for this moment. Um, this film does not do that. Aside from as I said, the one teeny misstep of you're going to make a Ashby esque movie and you choose Cat Stevens. Um, everything else is really wonderful, um, less obvious choices that are all era appropriate and love it. Like I would, I would listen to this soundtrack endlessly. Um, so like well done to the soundtrack supervisor of this movie. A few other kind of smaller things, which sort of highlighting a few of them, uh, getting back to Hunan. I mean, there, there's the one point where, um, he says that he's writing a monograph. Yeah. And I think I think it was Mary says, man, you you can't even dream a whole dream, can you? Says, right? <laughs> there's not enough for a full book, and she's like, right. you can't even fully, you know, embrace the possibilities. And, and again, that gets back to what he thinks his fate already is—that the most he could possibly do is just a monograph. Yeah. Um, and I think that's that particular line is just a wonderful way to kind of say, dude, you have just got to open up the horizons a little bit here. Another part where one of the students is, is accused of lying because uh, he said, oh, I'm being held over because my parents are renovating their house. And somebody says, You're, you must be lying. Nobody renovates their house in the winter. Well, let me tell you. <laughs> <laughs> 
Hopefully <laughs> now, some people do. Uh, <laughs> that with me. The, those, I, I mean, that's aside from like what we've been talking about about like the themes and the overall narrative of this movie. Um, the script is razor sharp. Really, like the script really is. Aside, like we were talking earlier on about how um, Hunnam at the beginning of this movie is so bitter, but also so quick. You know, mm. like one of the one of his students says, "I'm supposed to go to Cornell," and Hunnam's reply is unlikely. You know, it's just like <laughs> little things, little things like that, or just even when when Tully's like, "I thought all the Nazis were hiding in Argentina," <laughs> like those kinds of quick little like fast paper cuts of of dialogue in this movie. It, and the bitterness is is very humorous. Uh, yeah. The insults in this movie are. Are excellent. Oh yes. Um, too dumb to pour piss out of his boot uh, was a, a really good one. I think that he mentioned about one of his students. Uh, I, I won't say any of the other ones because they're they're just lovely to just kind of stumble. If, across. I mean, the, what's wild is this feels like it should be based on a book. You know, it's a completely original screenplay. It feels like it's, it's something that somebody would have already written. I, I love this movie for that. Like, I love everything about this story and and how it was brought to life that's the thing about like original screenplays like this is just this ability to take it where you don't think it's going to go to have moments of like, Oh, well that was just an interesting turn of phrase to build wholly unique characters, real human characters. Yeah. Um, I, you know, like anybody else, I, I love uh, movies that you can just sit back, you know, turn the brain off, etc. Uh, and, and everything else in between. But boy, when you, when you see a movie like this, where, there's craft. There's absolute craft in the writing and the staging and the creation of these people. Um, you know, that's where they started. They started with the characters. And uh, boy, oh boy, did that pay off. Uh, you know, for me anyway, and I, I think for you too. Definitely. Well, we end every review here uh, on the matinee cast with a souvenir, something tangible or intangible. If you could take away from this movie and keep Bob Turnbull, what would be your souvenir from um, Alexander Payne's The Holdovers? I, I'm going to give you several. Um, well, of course you are. The, the, well, the, the, the first one is those three quotes I mentioned that just yeah. really, I think, um, kind of nail a lot of the, the movie. Uh, another one is, is uh, Devine, uh, Joy Randolph. Wow. Um, if I'd seen her before, I, I hadn't really picked up on her as an actress. She I sure is, if people are wondering forward. where they may have seen her before, she is in Only Murders in the Building. She is the lead inspector uh, of every one of the three murders. Uh, she was also in the far too short-lived uh, reinterpretation of High Fidelity um, that was um, fronted by uh, Zoe Kravitz. She oh, right, right, was, right. Yeah, 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 she was the Jack Black character. She was the Barry in that. Oh, really? Operation, okay. yeah. Um, so, so that if, so, yeah, but she's incredible. Uh, I'll definitely be keeping uh, keeping the eye out, shall we say? Uh, three smaller, just kind of uh, details. The the dean's or the, the headmaster's office. That that is an office. Spacious, huge chairs, all the books on the wall. Wow, beautiful. Um, uh, Giamatti's worst football throw. Ever when he, when he finds that random football, he's walking around the campus and he and he goes to throw it. <laughs> there is skill in making that look as bad as it did. Right. Uh, and that outdoor bookstore they found in Boston in the snow—it's snowing and there's this outdoor kind of you know set set of books. And I just thought that's both completely unrealistic and not really smart and just wonderful. Yeah. Uh, all at the same time, but 
the, the one thing that I think I'll take away is that at one point, um, Tully asked him, which, which eye do I look at? You know, a little bit sarcastically, but he's basically kind of like, you know, from, from talking to you, which eye do I look at? I picked the wrong one. I, I was sure I had yeah. the, 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 the proper one to look at. And nope, uh, unless, you know, he, he wasn't telling the truth or, or whatever. Uh, but I was sure I had the right one, and I did not. So, um um well you actually stole my uh my my souvenir i do want to go to that bookstore which is yeah, that book yeah, market yeah. which is completely impractical to have in a city like boston after october but i don't know there's, there was something about the gentle fall, snow falling that makes it kind of romantic you know it's the kind of thing where you're like if you just put a canopy over this thing that you can see <laughs> the snow and not ruin the books that'd be great but, yeah, um, yeah no, I, I would love to go somewhere like that. So that would be my my souvenir. Uh, we rate here on the Matinee Cast on a scale of one to four stars. I know you hate it. Uh, hate it. You're gonna. Every, every time uh, I'm going to mention it, but that's fine. That's fine. Uh, it's your show, man. What do you give Alexander Payne's The Holdovers? Don't don't love giving the perfect scores just for whatever reason. So 3.75. I mean, this, this is one of my favorite films of the year, absolutely. I can't even really find anything bad about this movie from uh, its I, I you know what I, I will give it a perfect score because this I, is, I, I, this is exactly what I hope to find when I sit down to a movie big or small don't care the genre the budget whatever I, I want to think back on subtlety I want to think about something simple that becomes something complex uh, and I and I want to be entertained and I was so very entertained I didn't even get to see this in the theater I did watch it at home uh, mm. on a screener and and I was wrapped you know it's it's the kind you would think that it's the kind of lower boil movie that one could get very easily distracted from at home but no it it will take you in its hands and just hold you tight for two hours and you will thank it at the end because it's, it's a wonderful piece of work. Uh, definitely one of the best films I've seen this year. Um, hey, maybe you hate this movie. Maybe you think that we're uh, out of our minds. Maybe you think that it's a modern classic or we're not being kind enough. Let me know. Ryan at the matinee.ca on Twitter. Uh, I am matinee underscore CA and there's always Facebook, facebook.com slash dark matinee. What do you think of Alexander Payne's The Holdovers? We are going to take a very quick break and uh, flip the record over to play the other side. So come on back right after this. We'll talk about more movies. We are back. He's Bob Turnbull. I'm Ryan McNeil. It's MatineeCast 316. We've been talking about The Holdovers, the new film by Alexander Payne. Um, this is The Other Side. It's the point of the show where we talk about other films, uh, further viewing, further reading. Um, you know, if you want to create yourself a little double feature, uh, what would go well with a movie like The Holdovers? Bob, why don't you get us started? Uh, where did your brain go after coming away from Alexander Payne's latest film? Well, I mean, the obvious point is to start with other Alexander Payne movies. Uh, Sideways is a good one with Giamatti. Uh, obviously, that received a lot of great critical acclaim, and Giamatti was excellent. About Schmidt, I think, sort of fits that same kind of tenor of, like, you know, assholes. But you, it, it can't help but feel there's some redeeming qualities in there somewhere. Uh, Throw in Descendants in Nebraska as well. I think they, they kind of fit into that realm of those same movies. I think any of those would be good. Um, I already mentioned uh, the other director that was another obvious starting point is Hal Ashby. Um, not just because of the whole 70s kind of thing, but because of 
I think he started with character and he built from there. Uh, the two that really jump out for me from Hal Ashby be the last detail with Jack Nicholson, again, playing somebody going like, oh, this guy's an asshole, but you know, there's more to him and, uh, and Harold and Maude, uh, a, because it's my favorite of, of Ashby's and B because these are weird people, but they're complex people. And you know, they're kind of searching for something and they're helping each other out. And, you know, there's that generation difference there. Um, again, a lovely, lovely film, but <laughs> where I landed was, uh, Mike Mills's 2021 movie. Come on, come on. Oh. One of my favorites of that year. Um, I think summer soul was, was my favorite and that was just underneath it. Um, it, a, I love I love the film, but I, I think it hits uh, some similar aspects. And I'm not going to try and like match it perfectly because you can't, and it's a very different film. But A, you do have this relationship between different generations, you know, an adult and, and a kid, although in this case the kid is nine years old. Mm -hmm. Very uh, precocious is the wrong word, but a different kind of kid. Sure. Thinks very differently. Uh, there's a few road trips in this, uh, and 70s movies are great for road trips. So mm -hmm. We had a, a minor one in, in Holdovers as well. Um, there is the sort of little bit of a theme between making things happen and letting things happen to you, being kind of, you know, the person who decides your own fate. Um, heck, how, how they deal with mental illness. You yeah. know, again, this is a child who has a father, who is struggling with mental illness, very differently handled in Come On, Come On, for sure. Uh, but, but I think that's a really interesting way to kind of compare and contrast these movies. Um, but, but also, again, really natural, human, genuine, and I think even interesting characters. Uh, I think a lot, it feels like a lot of this movie was improv. Holdovers, I think, is obviously extremely well-scripted. Yeah. Probably worth it and all that. Come On, Come On has a very improv nature to it there, there's interviews with other kids he's uh, uh somebody who does audio recordings probably for like npr or something and he's interviewing kids in different cities they feel like actual interview questions and answers and even a lot of the scenes with uh, the child actor uh woody norman who is amazing um feel like they kind of were building it on the spot and kind of creating the scenario and the okay we're gonna play a game here you're gonna jump on the beds you're gonna do this and a lot of it just kind of came out organically uh I, i'm drifting away from its connections to holdovers but i i think there's enough here that it is again one of those sort of mid-level american films that maybe gets missed that I absolutely adored because I thought it was original. I thought it had great characters and that drove the story and they changed a bit. They, they, they were kind of changing their relationships, their view of life. Uh, they affected each other. I think, um, you know, trying to actually coming to terms with their issues. He's just coming off a big breakup. Uh, his sister, who's the boy's mother, is trying to deal with her ex and <laughs> and her boy. There's there's moments in this movie that talk about parenthood that are so <laughs> accurate that it kind of hurts, but it's also you laugh. It's like, oh, she's so right. Yeah, you, you sometimes look at your child and just want to strangle them, and you love them more than anything else you could possibly imagine. Mike Mills is doing the same kind of thing that Alexander Payne is doing. He's telling these very small human stories. Yeah. The characters in his film are not big. They're not important. They're not rich. Uh, you know, and I, I mean all of that, you know, in, in the capital sense, not in the emotional sense, because they are very rich. Um, 
in, um, in terms of character and in terms of what they bring to the story. Um, that movie it was underrated. Uh, it felt like it just kind of came and went. It didn't really make a dent with people, um, which is a shame. Our friend James McNally came down, came on this show and we did a really great conversation uh, about that movie and, everything that that comes with it and and all and i actually things. listened to that episode too Ooh, so you're the one um if people if people want to find it I, i'm reasonably sure it can be found now on amazon prime i think it's it's one of the it is that, that kind yep. of like lives there fully yep. um so if you haven't seen come on come on give it a give it a go it's a very quiet movie um lot it really really lovely Joaquin Phoenix and this little juvenile actor have a great relationship um and they have these really mature conversations like not like you said precocious is the wrong word but the kid is definitely punching above his weight in a lot of the stuff that he talks about but they talk about it in a very very real way and it's a it's a yeah i I do wish more people would see it i wish more parents would see it um it's it's a great film um definitely one of the best of its year Um, even the uh, the quotes the the, sorry the the quotes and litters throughout the movie there's there's three or four i think uh passages where he's doing some narrating or I think maybe reading to, uh, to the boy. Yeah. Uh, and I, and I, I couldn't help but relate those a bit to those three main quotes I was talking about with the holdovers where mm. it really encapsulates so much of the theme. There's even like a quote he read from uh, Kristen Johnson, uh-huh. the, 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 uh, the documentary filmmaker uh, about imposing yourself on these people and kind of even changing their fates a bit with you being there, you know, the, the, the viewer is actually kind of changing the state uh, as they watch it. And um, I, I thought all that was fascinating. Again, adding to the structure of the movie, these quotes that really kind of um, not just delineate it, but really kind of express the themes in different ways. Yeah. Well, speaking of being there, um, we, huh. you know, we, we've, we've touched an awful lot on filmmaker Hal Ashby and his influence on this film and his influence on Alexander Payne. And I did want to pair it with another Hal Ashby film. I'm so and glad I, you did. Yeah. yeah uh, I so went so with being there, which is a film starring Peter Sellers, <laughs> which at the time seemed absolutely, you know, unbelievable that it could possibly happen. And now 50 some years later, it's like, you know, I totally buy that this would actually happen. Um, and it's, it's about a gardener in Washington, DC who kind of unbeknownst to him, just him, just his name is chance because of course it is, but just chance being chance manages to kind of stumble his way into the halls of power. And every time he's asked a question, he keeps thinking that he's being asked about gardening. So he answers in all of these gardening. He answers literally, but everybody who's talking to him thinks he's speaking metaphorically and they just think he's brilliant. He's dumb as a post, but <laughs> he, he just keeps advancing. Innocent. His, innocent. Okay. He's not, not, not dumb as a post. He's, yeah, he's innocent as a child. Um, he just keeps advancing his position and comes further and further into the room where it happened uh, to, to steal a Hamilton line just because everybody thinks he's being, he's brilliant and speaking metaphorically when he's actually being quite literal. Peter Sellers in this movie is fantastic. Shirley MacLaine in this movie is off the charts. Um, and it really showed again, this kind of, this kind of story of grown-up people doing grown-up things, even though yeah. this one is satirical, 
it's still very, it's still a very grown up satire. You know, kids aren't going to put this on for kicks. Um, but I think it would make a great double feature. Like after somebody's come away from the holdovers, it's like, you want another course? You want dessert now? All right, let's sit down and let's watch being there and just buckle up because this was how people in the seventies responded to their political climate. And I think right now it really applies. Yeah, no, I, I, I think that's, that's a great pairing. I mean, I, I, like I said, I was leaning towards more of a Harold and Ma, but you're probably right, and that's an even better comparison, at least from uh, a thematic point of view, uh, uh, using that comparison between you know what's happening now and then. Uh-huh. Uh, you know, they were talking about you know this is what 1979, I think, was when that came out, end of the 70s. Thereabouts. Um, yeah, uh, I, I think that's that's probably a better pairing. I, I mean, you could go right across the seventies. I'm not sure if you you've got any other ones in there. I was I was just thinking as we were talking about things like uh, Alice doesn't live here anymore, Kramer versus Kramer, an unmarried woman. A lot of these kind of talky seventies movies that are very character based, uh, I think, would be great pairings with holdovers, both from an aesthetic point of view, fits kind of nicely in. But Justin, let's let's live with some really natural, real characters. I mean, Chance is not, you know, a, uh, I don't want to say he's not a real character. Like you said, it's a little too close to home in some ways. But it is terrible. But I think a lot of the reactions are are, are very real, sadly. Yeah. People just taking, you know, kind of like, well, no, you must be saying something deep and profound, and I will follow you anywhere. Lovely place to kind of wind things up there, sir. I agree. That is episode 316 of the Matinee Cast. I am so thankful that Bob was able to come by and join me. I'm always thankful that Bob is able to come by and join me. Um, Come on back to this show on Monday, December 18th. We've got one more episode before the end of the year. It'll be episode 317. No idea what we're going to talk about. Maybe we'll talk about May, December. Maybe we'll talk about Saltburn. Maybe we'll give you a preview and we'll talk about origin. I don't know. We'll have it figured out between now and and December 18th. And uh, we'll have a new show for you then. Uh, Bob, now that you got uh, all, nothing but time, is there, is there places where people can follow you or anything? Uh, I, I, geez, I can't even remember my own, <laughs> my own Twitter handle. At uh, Eternal Sunshine, at Eternal At the Logical Mind. At the Logical Mind. Jeez, thank you. You're welcome. Man, that, that shows you how long it's been since I've actually used it. Clearly. I did use a drink, Tiff. Um, I, I did have one little parting thing, though. Oh. Um, I want to specifically say that I believe that you not giving me the know your enemy questions is actually retaliation. Sure. And I specifically think that because I actually listened to your last episode, shout out to Hillary Butler, uh, and I was just so happy that I got Hillary to expand her options and yeah, not just go for one choice. And she was like, yeah, I, I, I'm going to waffle on these questions. I'm going to have more than one. And I think this is absolute retaliation for that. Not let's, let's go with that. <laughs> well, thank you for being here. I look forward to uh, you joining me again. And um Spoiler alert for people, it's actually going to be sooner than we think. My site is thematinee.ca. For more audio content, you can find back episodes by going to thematinee.ca. You can also find them in all the usual places, Apple, Google, Spotify. Uh, You can find them in some unusual places, Pocket Cast, TuneIn, Radio Public, CastBox. If you have a podcasting platform, odds are I am there. And if I'm not, let me know. I will put my show there. It's so easy. And uh, that will give you ways to subscribe for free and get alerts when new episodes drop. Feedback on, yeah. Feedback on the holdovers can be left in the comment section of the site. You can email me, ryan at the matinee.ca. Uh, I am still on Twitter, giving you songs in the daily, uh, matinee underscore CA. And there's always Facebook, facebook.com slash dark matinee. Bob, any final thoughts? 
Thank you, thank you, thank you, sir. Um, you know, had I actually been there with you, and this wasn't a virtual kind of thing, uh, I would have brought a couple of ciders for you because I always bring, you know, a few beers because it's a sociable occasion. But uh, I had a couple of ciders with your name on it. But uh, sadly, well, uh, I'm just gonna have to find you and, somewhere, uh, someplace next week. And uh, what are the odds that we might see each other I don't again? No, man. Um, thank you again. Uh, thank you, everybody, for listening. For Bob, I'm Ryan. See you at the matinee.